Hey guys, it's Jeff. You've caught side B of our 1980s episode. If you hit this one by mistake, go ahead and flip around to side A. Hit that one first. That's the first part of this episode. But if you have already listened to that, you've found the right place to hear the rest of it. We're going to pick up right where we left off with Richard Dent after the music intro. Yeah, and so to continue the defensive line, which, you know, look, Hampton and McMichael together, that's fantastic. Now, add Richard Dent, 1983, eighth-round draft pick. Are you kidding me? Eighth-round draft pick out of Tennessee State. He puts together some pretty great years, but like 84-85, he's amazing. He racks up 34.5 sacks over 84-85. and He's the Super Bowl MVP. I think you can make a case that he had the best season of any Bears player in 1985. So being the best defender on the best defense, I think is a you know uh, one of those arguments that you make to say, oh wow, that's that's a pretty impressive player. He was pretty consistent, uh, but like you know, kind of got hurt a fair amount you know throughout his career, kind of battled back injuries and stuff. But 1993, he had one kind of last great season. He had 12 and a half sacks you know, made his fourth and final Pro Bowl, but in the 80s was just honestly like really a dominant pass rusher throughout when he was on the field. 124 and a half sacks in a Bears uniform. It's the most in team history. Again, sacks are an official stat starting in 1982. I'm not sure that he would have more than say Doug Atkins if we went back and counted all those back in the day, but he has four of the five top single season marks, including the top two. 17 and a half is the team record for single season sacks. Dent would talk about the rule of three pass rushers. And we've already talked about Hampton. We've already talked about McMichael. You add Richard Dent into that in 1983. And it's really kind of an amazing trio and there's some other guys obviously some linebackers that can rush the passer from time to time but these are the three guys that really have a lot of talent and have to be accounted for by offensive linemen well you can't double all three of these guys and so you have to kind of pick your poison and that is why this defense which started racking up so many sacks is that you have so many truly talented pass rushers that demand extra attention and so unless you plan on just running you know, uh, one receiver out into a route and keeping everybody else behind a block, you know, you have, you have to know that you're going to take some sacks against these guys. And so that's kind of the, that is really the, the trio of players that really drive this defense and rack up all these sacks. So think of Dent as the guy that's more of a speed rusher coming around the outside, and you've got McMichael pushing things up the middle. You've got Hampton that can kind of do both. He's kind of that, like you said, that J.J. Watt, so he's more of a power guy. But again, you've got people collapsing the pocket on every which way, and you've got Dent that can come around the end. It's kind of an amazing thing to watch that Bears defensive line work. And so those are the three guys that I think are super important. The fourth defensive lineman that we're going to talk about is a guy that I think we have to talk about not just from his football, but also just from the cultural impact that this giant defensive tackle ended up having. And I think a lot of times his football gets lost in the personality that is William Perry, the refrigerator. And I think that's sad that his football playing ability, especially on the defensive line, isn't one of the top couple things you think about with Fridge. 
but he he was this tremendous athlete. You know, is he one of the borderline Hall of Famers we're talking about here? Well, no, but he was an amazingly effective run stuffer who was a scary athlete for his size. Supposedly, supposedly, Jeff, he could 360 dunk a basketball. He set shot put and discet records in high school. He's this great athlete, a great swimmer, too, for somehow. But so, (laughs) you know, here's this amazing athlete. Right. But when people look at him or they think of him, they just think of, oh, he's this big fat dude that you know got handed the ball and scored some touchdowns and that's so unfortunate gil brandt jeff i'm sure you're familiar sure. Cowboys. cowboys pro personnel director in the, i think from the 60s all the way to maybe the late 80s he has perry as the 31 best defensive tackle of all time hmm. which you don't hear stuff like that no, about right, perry. Exactly. it's so unfortunate because you know when when you think of perry you think about you know, all the stuff, running the ball, catching the ball, blocking. And uh, to me, it gets caught up in the friction between Ditka and not only Buddy Ryan, but other coaches. Why does he get used against San Francisco? Because Bill Walsh, had, you know, Ditka had a score to settle with Bill Walsh. Why does he get thrown in against the Packers? Because Ditka hates the Packers coach, Forrest Gregg. And so you know, he gets put in these situations, and he's very capable it makes Ditka look smart to do that, but I don't think Ditka was doing it for any other reason than he wanted to stick it to these guys. He just kind of he just gets he gets lucky with it. I feel really bad for him because in the Super Bowl, of course, you know he scores a touchdown. Peyton doesn't. There's no way Fridge was asking for that. It just happened to him, and he gets caught up in all this stuff. And it's just unfortunate because he's a very good player, but you know he's he's thought of as almost this celebrity on the Bears team. Uh, in, in the research I did, I keep coming across that, you know, around not only America, but around the world, Fridge is the most famous person on the team. It's it's the, you know, does your mom know someone test? You know, your, your mom mm, that, that right. doesn't follow sports. In 85, your mom knows who the Fridge is. She maybe knows who Peyton is or maybe some of the other players, maybe, maybe not. She knows who Fridge is. People over in other countries, I guess, they know who Fridge is. He's the most famous person on the team, and unfortunately it wasn't because he was a really good defensive tackle. It was all this other stuff. But, uh, you know, uh, you can't blame the guy. Perry runs with it. He has a lot of endorsements, a lot of things like that. He he lives it up. I think any of us would have. But, you know, he sticks with the Bears for quite a while, and I think they release him in after 92, and he – plays a little while longer but uh, unfortunately today he's had he's had his health issues and that's really sad I, he supposedly lives in a assisted living home now at i think he's in his late 50s and you know struggled with weight struggled with alcohol and it's really unfortunate because he, he seems like a great guy and you yeah. just hope that you know he you know can maybe get some help from somewhere yeah, absolutely, and he's a kind of a fascinating figure, and obviously someone that we wanted to talk about because, like you said, he does kind of run with this national attention that he's given. But he actually was like a really good player, and people forget about that. And you don't want people to wind up as caricatures of themselves when they have a right to be known as a good player. And so I think it's important to realize that this guy really did contribute on the field. And yeah, he got put in some weird situations with the handoffs and. You know, I think Guy McIntyre was 
the San Francisco 49er mm-hmm. that carried the ball against the Bears and really embarrassed Ditka. And so he gets this big rookie and does the same back to him when the Bears have the opportunity to kind of stick it to Walsh. And so, you know, I like you said, he Ditka 100,000% did that to stick it to whoever they were doing. And then probably in the Super Bowl, it was a, hey, this is fun. Let's just keep doing this as opposed to, you know, running the ball with Peyton. And I, you know, we're not talking about Peyton this episode specifically, but I, you bring it up and I think we probably should just talk about it. You know, that not, not scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl really impacted Walter Peyton. Like he really struggled with it, was really struggling with it after the game. You know, there's, if you've ever watched the interview with him afterwards, like you can tell it really bothered him. I, I, you know, I have a hard time kind of like thinking that that's that big of a deal. And there's so many times that he was given the ball inside the five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've got 11 defenders that are just keying on number 34, uh, as you would imagine. And that's why it was so easy for everybody else to be able to score us because everybody was focusing in on Walter. But, you know, do you have any feelings about that when you, because like, you know, Peyton's such a hero to so many Bears fans. And it was kind of a, it's a difficult I don't even want to like put a word on it but it's a it's a difficult thing to digest as a Bears fan to kind of go through that and and take that in. The Bears tried to give it to him. The, the Patriots just keyed in on Peyton. There there's a famous play. I think Suey gets it but they fake to Peyton and there's like seven Patriots that go to Peyton. And then right. Suey just he has like one guy to beat to get in the end zone. So they definitely tried to get it to him. But at the same time it, it's easy to call out Peyton's reaction to this. But he bled and bruised himself and mm-hmm. hurt himself for this franchise for almost 10 years to this point. And right. if you're standing there and you see a 300-pound defensive tackle get the ball for the touchdown and you have it, that would piss me off too. And I totally yeah. get it. And I don't think – I believe Dicka when he says that. He just was never thinking of it at the time. I totally get that. As a coach – you know, sometimes you just you're not thinking about stuff like that. I think it genuinely hurt Dicka. Dicka gave him his own ball that he scored in the Super Bowl as kind of an apology. But mm. I I see it from both sides. It's unfortunate, uh, but maybe the saddest part of all of this is the Bears never get back there. Why 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 right. can't the Bears get back there to next year and make sure Walt Walter scores? It's a pretty freak thing that he didn't score. 46 points right. and Walter doesn't get any of them. I mean, that's that's really that's really a freak occurrence. My opinion of it is like it's just one of those tough situations and we're all human and you you know you'd love to have Peyton say the cliche thing and really believe it like oh I am just happy we won the game that's the most important thing and you know they were keying on me and so obviously the right thing was to you know you'd love to hear stuff like that but you know what at the same time I love that Walter was human in that moment. And that it meant so much to him and that he was really disappointed that I don't, to me, that was a very human moment and a very human thing. And I'm, and I'm totally cool with it. Um, not that, not that anybody cares what I think about Walter Payton's uh, reaction, but to me, it's like, Hey man, you, you, like you said, you gave 11 years at that point to the team. You know, you've been through terrible seasons. You carried that team on your back, literally. Like I get it. it you know, it's, it was a tough situation. So but anyway, you brought that up. I wanted to make sure we covered that because I think that's a very interesting piece of this entire championship run. But uh, my last guy, and then you got one more, but my last guy, we're going to talk about a couple linebackers. I'm going to talk about Wilbur Marshall. And I really wanted to talk about Wilbur because I think he's a pretty interesting guy. And he also had one of the 
best seasons a linebacker has ever had, and I don't think people talk about it enough. So he's one of the latecomers. He was taken in the 1984 draft, 11th overall, so he's the first-round pick. They just kept adding to that defense. Why not? So not the most talkative guy. Really let his play uh, do the talking on the field. Another one of these guys that I, I think he's he's probably in the Hall of Very Good, but you know he's not a Hall of Famer. He had a really pretty good 1985, but he was an absolute monster in 1986. So over 100 tackles, over he had five and a half sacks, five interceptions, four forced fumbles, three fumble recoveries, two defensive touchdowns. So good like Lord. a crazy good, like balanced season. So pro football reference, which I spend so much time on, and I, I'm sure you do as well. It's like my favorite web page of all time. They have something called an approximate value mm-hmm. of a player's season. So basically it's just trying to say like, hey, we're trying to come up with a number that really defines what this the, the, the entirety of this season is. So Wilbur's 1986 approximate value was so high that there's only two other linebackers that have ever matched it. Okay, I'm, No one succeeded it, but two have matched it. It was Pat Swilling in 1991, who was a Hall of Famer, and Ray Lewis in 2000. Oh, wow. That's it. That's it. That's the, those are the only linebackers that have matched it. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, Jeff, why didn't he, if he was the best player on the best defense in 1986, why didn't he win the defensive player of the year? Well, there's this guy, his name's Lawrence Taylor, and he had 20 and a half sacks in 1986. Um, that's always going to get a little bit more attention than more of a overall solid you know overall round the linebacker play but you know it it was an incredible season and even lt's approximate value because it was just sacks that he was not not just sacks i guess because you know obviously they're very important but he wasn't creating turnovers like wilbur marshall was so i I think that wilbur needs to be talked about more because that 86 season he's there through 87 and then he actually leaves i talked a little bit about those um uh, labor disputes and the strikes and 1987 was a strike year and the players won some free agency stuff in the 87 deal and a lot of people talk about reggie white being the first big star to really impact free agency by leaving the eagles and going to the packers but you know wilbur leaves after 87 and goes to washington in 88 and so even though you know He's maybe not the guy that's talked about. This was a really big deal to lose for Chicago because this is one of their star players, and he's now playing for Washington. He wins the Super Bowl there. He makes three first-team All-Pros in total. Really great linebacker that probably doesn't get it talked enough just because of all the attention that's put on the defensive line. But, again, this front seven is just so incredible. Maybe the most – probably the most decorated – and I'd be curious to hear what you think in terms of overall greatness. But Mike Singletary, he's our last guy. Go ahead. Uh, what's Singletary's nickname, Jeff? Samurai Mike. Do you know why he's called that? I actually don't. I, I really never did either. I always assumed it was because, you know, a samurai is disciplined and focused. And that's definitely how you would describe Mike Singletary. But apparently, and this is coming from Singletary himself. Uh, Doug Plank gave him the name. Doug Plank saw this character on SNL, John Belushi, where John Belushi would play that samurai character and go into the restaurant with the samurai sword and carve everything up. Have you seen that? I'm familiar, yeah. It's a very famous skit from the time. And so I guess Singletary 
you know, at practices or whatever, you know, he's he's very animated. He has to call a lot of stuff on the defense, but just wave his arms around all the time and especially make these grunting noises when he would tackle. And so Doug Plank started calling him Samurai, Samurai Mike, because of that. And so wow. it, it kind of makes me love the nickname even more because it's not what you think at all. No, not but at it, all. But it works in two ways because, yeah, he is – you think of Singletary, you think of the the eyes bulging out and looking at the quarterback and – you know, I if you're a, a linebacker, I think if you're a linebacker growing up in the 90s, I think that's who you aspire to be like. You aspire to be like Mike Singletary. But he's a second-round pick out of Baylor. Uh, Ryan, any rookie besides Hampton, doesn't like him right away. But, you know, one day Osborne pulls him aside and says, hey, you know, hey, this Ryan guy, don't, you know, don't get caught up in all that. Him yelling at you. He likes you. And Singletary just dedicates himself uh, he watches as much film as any coach, if not more, and just a total student of the game. He, he's in huge contrast to these other players because you got, you know, Bongo and you got McMahon, kind of these loudmouths, and uh, Singletary's the exact opposite. He doesn't party. He, you know, he's he's very religious. He stays in, watches film, the family man, and just I think when you look at all the characters on that defense. It has to be Singletary, the guy that keeps everything together, because he's like the one really level-headed person on that defense right. that kind of keeps the show going. And he has so many responsibilities. I, I'm no expert on the 46 defense. I don't even want to sound like I really understand it, but they have a lot of calls based off what the offense comes out in. So whatever formation the offense comes out in, uh, they have these automatic front coverages. And so Singletary's got to be the one to recognize what's going on, get everybody in the right spot all that before the ball is snapped and he's just he's a coach on the field and he becomes a coach later in his career and if most of our people listening I imagine really know Mike Singletary really well if you've never seen Mike Singletary play go watch him mic'd up his final game versus the Packers and the Bears don't win this game the Packers were on their way up Bears were on their way down but if you want to understand the player Mike Singletary was Go watch that game. I'm not even going to say anything about it because you need to stop what you're doing right now. Go to, go to well, finish no, the podcast. Go watch it right now on YouTube. <laughs> Mike Singletary mic'd up versus Packers. You will not be disappointed. I, one thing I'm kind of surprised about is that he didn't have more success as a coach. And I think mm-hmm. people may be a little hard on his coaching career. His record is. I, I want to say he's like 18 and 22 for the 49ers, but the 49ers were absolute dog crap when he got there. And right after he leaves and Harbaugh comes in, they have a lot of success. I, I hope he gets another shot at being a head coach because he is extremely smart. He's a man of integrity. I don't know if he'll get that chance. I, I, I would guess that he won't, but I'm, I'm rooting for him because he seems like a great guy. So, do I need to tell my Mike Singletary story? Yes, you absolutely need to tell your Mike Singletary. It's it's, it's the perfect Mike Singletary story. So the story is I'm in the D.C. area for a conference. I go and I run a half marathon in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, long day for me. Get up early, run this half marathon, drive back to D.C., I'm flying back. D.C. on the weekends is, you know, uh, the airport on the weekends, pretty quiet. And I actually have to, I don't have to, but I'm, I'm getting an earlier flight. 
So I'm ch changed my ticket. I'm on this earlier flight. I'm kind of running to the gate because I'm cutting it a little close to get on this earlier flight, but I'm going to get home a little earlier. And so I kind of rush up to the gate. I'm, you know, I'm in normal weekend attire. I've got a Bears shirt. I've got a Bears hat. And at the time, I was using a Bears duffel bag because, you know, I'm a super fan. So I get to the gate, and I'm kind of standing there, and I'm looking. I'm like, I think that's Mike Singletary. And we're flying. I'm flying home through Minnesota, Minneapolis, and he's a coach for the Vikings at the time. So it kind of checks out that, that that would be what's happening. So I get on the flight. I expect him to be in first class. Nope, he's actually in the last, very last row of seats, and I'm one row ahead of him. And so I really want to turn around. The whole flight, all I can think about is that I really want to just turn around and have a conversation with him. I don't. And then we're exiting the plane, and I think, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to ask him if I can just get a quick picture with him before we get into the uh, common area at the airport. So just on that little thing that you yeah, walk on from little the ramp, yeah. airport terminal to the plane, right, the little ramp. And so I, I, I exit the plane. There's maybe two people between us. I let them get in front of me. And then he comes around and I say, hey, coach, just wondering, I'm a really big Bears fan, obviously. Uh, would it be possible if I could just get a quick picture with you before we get into the airport terminal and, you know, attract attention? And he stops and he kind of takes a big breath and he's his eyes do the eye thing, kind of pops out at me. And he says, were you at the card show this morning? And I was like, what? what? And he's like, card show. A lot of people paid a lot of money to get a picture with me or get my autograph at the card show. And I think you were at the card show. And I'm like, whoa, I, hey, man, no big deal. Like, don't worry about it. I'm scared. <laughs> like, I am scared out of my mind because the eyes bulged out. And Mike Singletary is not a particularly tall guy. I'm taller than Mike Singletary. You know, I probably weigh more than Mike Singletary. Who cares? Like, this guy's going to spear me. Like, I, I, I felt I was shaking. And obviously, it's a famous person and someone that I, you know, want to, like, have a nice interview. I'm asking something from him. But I was shaking because those eyes popped out at me. And I just kind of, oh, no, 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 hey, whatever, whatever. I was not at the card show. I was running a half marathon this morning. I explained that to him. And so he reluctantly took a picture with me where I am smiling and he is, like, deadpan not happy <laughs> to be doing this and i kind of feel bad i don't you have to post that on your twitter I don't page know, yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have to track it down and find it i don't it's not normally something i would do talk to somebody but uh, you know i thought no one's around hopefully i'm not you know imposing too much on him and i'm you know obviously i'm super bears fan like i had evidence all over me but if you the, so the first thing i did was I walked into the common area and I found a seat and I called you <laughs> <laughs> and I told you the story and you said, hey, that's the best story that you could ever ask for to to to, uh, to meet Mike Singletary. If he was the nicest guy, that would be really boring. You want that. <laughs> you wanted to be able to get the crazy eyes and you were absolutely right. <laughs> I've ever I haven't, I haven't thought of that story in so long. It's just, Jeff, that's the perfect Mike Single story. You think that story would make me like him less? It makes me like him five times more. <laughs> he is so laser focused. He doesn't have time for you, Jeff. I know. He's got to go scout for the next Vikings game. He's got, the man is Samurai Mike. 
you just got in the way. I, I and I completely agree. And it's a it was an amazing experience, and it's a much better story that it, it went down that way. I will try to find that picture and post it with this episode. So I will also try to see if I can get uh, my mom to find the picture of Richard Dent signing an autograph for me. And Platinum when you're a Wisconsin, small child, yeah, I'm a small kid, and apparently I said, "Mr. Dent, can I have your autograph?" And he laughed and shook his head. He's like, Mr. Dent. <laughs> and uh, thought that that was pretty rich for, you know, some little pint-sized kid asking for an autograph. But, yeah, we'll try to we'll try to find some old stuff and post it uh, with this episode. But we are, have been going at it for a very long time. We have to take a break, but we have categories to get through on the other side of this. All right, Matt. So categories this time, we're going to do all the same categories, but I have a special category, and that is the Super Bowl shuffle category. And my question is, is it kind of weird, kind of cool, or both? No, it's it's only cool. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Why? It's only cool. Here's why. You know, if they would have done it after the Super Bowl, it would have been the lamest thing ever. Sure. Even if they would have done it like before the Super Bowl, like the game, you know, before they played the Patriots, still not very cool. Not only do they do it in what, week 13? 13, right. They do it in week 13. They do it right after getting their butts handed to them by the Miami Dolphins. And they have the audacity to come out and, and record that. It, it's it's the great – there's no comparison. It's calling your – it's Babe Ruth calling your shot. Uh-huh. You're calling your shot two months before the Super Bowl is going to happen. It's It's so cool. So here's what's kind of weird about it. One, Peyton and McMahon have to cut <laughs> their verses after the fact, and they get green screened in. Although you can make an argument that that makes it even cooler. And then what's kind of weird is that it takes the world by storm. This was like a best-selling record. Mm-hmm. And it there were plenty of teams that tried to do something similar. There are some good, bad, or bad, good, I don't know, like rap lyrics in, in this thing. You know, I can still think of of Perry. You know, I always want to say that even though he's a rookie, he's no dumb cookie. Like, there <laughs> there are some it, – it's, it's kind of weird, like the whole thing and how popular it was. But it's kind of – I mean, in a weird way, it's held up in a very specific, kitschy kind of way. I was recently reading this Bears book. I can't think of the author's name, but he was a teenager at the time of the 85 Super Bowl. He flies down there and sees it, and I guess after the game is over, they just played the Super Bowl shuffle on a nonstop loop. And just there was all these Bears fans inside the Superdome that were just partying until they had to kick everyone out. And so, but yeah, a, a nationally famous song. And, you know, they, they weren't doing it, Jeff. They didn't make the song because they were greedy. Why did they do it, Jeff? To feed the needy. To feed the needy. How can you how can you be against that? Well, I think that the real story behind it was Willie Galt trying to break into Hollywood and, you know, had had some things. There's a very I think one, the book that you're referring to, I think is Monsters of the Midway by Rich Cohen. Yes. Or maybe just Monsters. Uh, I, think, I think it's just called Monst- Monsters. It, yeah, it's great, great book. Great book. And then there is an oral history of the Super Bowl shuffle that I think the Ringer or uh, Grantland did a few years ago. And that's worth tracking down, too. So, again, maybe I'll try to find those and put links to them. But 
yeah, it's it's just a it's a very interesting story, and like you said, they did it right after the loss because it was already lined up. They, you know, I, obviously at the time they thought they were going to go undefeated, but they went through it. There was a couple guys that declined; they would not participate. I believe Hampton and McMichael aren't in it. Tough to tough to see Mongo doing that. Oh no! I mean, it would be kind of funny if they just gave him the cowbell, but they gave that to somebody else. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I I find the whole thing kind of crazy and if I think if you were old enough to really like appreciate it and live through it, like it is super important to your Bears fandom as someone our age like kind of looking back on it, it's like what happened? What what is this thing? And it really like but it did. It captured the imagination. It's it is to me it's the craziest thing. So, next category, what's your favorite random stat of the deck of the decade? Okay. So Jeff from the five consecutive division central division winning teams. What do Mike Singletary, Jim Harbaugh, Ron Rivera, Leslie Frazier, and Jeff Fisher have in common? I, no, I don't know. What five NFL head coaches from those teams? Oh, okay, that's, sure. That's absurd. That's that's unheard of. Now, if you add in Sean Payton, it's six NFL head mm. coaches from those teams. The, those that generation of Bears teams, they don't get enough credit for how smart they were. Especially on the, most of those guys, besides Harbaugh, they're all defensive. I, I guess Peyton too, but you know the forty-six and then very complex defense and the defenses that came after it. Those are some smart players on those teams. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, you kind of dug for that one because that's not a stat that you could find in a record book any, anywhere. But I like it. For me, it's the number seventy-two. Any guess what that means? Well, it's the Fridges number. Mm, um, interesting, but this is in 1984. 72. I have no idea. It's the NFL record for team sacks in a single season. Oh, wow. And it's the the Bears own it from, from 84, 85, and 86. They were all really high up there. 87 was, all, uh, you know, obviously the strike shortened year, but those uh, those teams were all really high up there. Uh, but 72, it's the league record, 1984. I mean, look, the current unit, Mac, Hicks, Quinn, could be really interesting. I don't think they're going to get to 72. 72 seems like a number that's just not going to be broken. But not only is it a team record, it's a league record. So that's my favorite stat of the decade. All right, how about best player? Well, I don't know if we've had a tougher category. No, I, don't, I, don't, or I, I don't know. Or a tougher decade for this category. Uh, my final three, after a lot of thinking, mm-hmm. are Hampton, Singletary, and Dent. Mm-hmm. I, if, if we're talking best player, I'm going Hampton because you can play him anywhere on the line. Yeah, he's unblockable, and he, according to the coaches, he's the first guy you got to stop. But you can't go wrong with Singletary and, and Dent either. I'm really curious to hear who you picked. It's uh, so my notes. I you can make an argument for Peyton still. You can make an argument for Singletary. Mm-hmm. You can make an argument for Hampton. You can make an argument for Dent. And I, too, have spent way too much time thinking of this. And I kept making <laughs> arguments for a lot of different players. And I I wanted to make the argument for Walter, but I'm going to give him something different. And so I'm going to put Walter aside and we'll come back to him. And so for me... I actually think it's Singletary. Mm, okay, yeah, can't, can't go wrong. He because he wins Defensive Player of the Year, 
And like you actually mentioned, look, I think the defensive line is so incredibly important and that a middle linebacker having success behind a, a great defensive line is not like particularly surprising. But you made a great point in saying that you're the one, you know, hey, he keeps it together. He's the one that really keeps it all going. He's the one that's interpreting the signals. He's reading the defense. He's reading the offense to make sure that the defense is in the right spot. And so to me, like Singletary is kind of that coach on the field. He makes it all happen. And I I mean, it is, I mean, pick whatever you want. I don't think there's a wrong argument. But at the end of the day, I felt most comfortable saying it was Singletary in the 80s. Great answer. So what about most exciting player? I mean, is it Peyton? Or can you make an argument somewhere else? And I'm going to make an argument, but I'm cheating. So just fair word. Well, I, I didn't pick Peyton for anything just because we talked about him so much in the 70s. Yeah. And so I, I thought about it, and I, I you got to go someone from the defense. Mm-hmm. And so Hampton, he plays, you know, he gets moved around a lot. He faces a lot of double teams. So I'm thinking about, okay, if you're watching a game, who would you not want to take your eyes off of each play? And I think it's Dent because Dent gets a lot of one-on-ones on the outside, and he is just a terror. What what were his sack totals in 84 and 85? Was it 17 and r- ridiculous numbers, right? Right. right. And so, I, like right now, I watch Mac. Mm-hmm. I watch Mac every play because I yep, want to see absolutely. what he's going to do. And Dent is of that level, if not better than Cleo Mac. And so I think the most exciting player, the person I would want to watch every snap, is Richard Dent. Yeah, and I cheated, and I, I, like I said, and I just said the front seven. <laughs> nice. Because I think that it was just this collapsing pocket all the time, and people were just getting destroyed. And I, So I don't think that one guy or another necessarily is the most exciting player. I think it's just the unit, the, the front seven is just the most exciting thing to watch because they were just absolutely destroying people. Like, I, I'm sure that there was talent in the secondary, don't get me wrong, but it almost doesn't – it's an afterthought. No one's talking about the secondary because the mm-hmm. front seven is so dominant. And I think that you're watching Bears games for Peyton, yes, but you're also watching them for the front seven. And, like, you were, I mean, you were talking about how much you were watching the front different guys in the front seven and how fascinating, how much they flashed and how dominant they were. To me, I'm cheating. It's the front seven. It's a good cheat. <laughs> it's a good cheat. All right, so what about favorite player? What's your favorite player? Who was your favorite player from this decade? Uh, favorite player, guy. I mean, it's so hard to answer because you could go so many different ways. Right. If if you're asking, I'm going to answer this question as me right now in 2020. I'm going with the person we both picked number one. I'm going with Mongo because mm-hmm. he's he's just he's a cartoon character. He's ridiculous, but he's this really really great player. That is super consistent and super solid his whole Bears career. I'm going Steve McMichael. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's so funny. I don't think anybody would have thought that he would have been like the first pick. And, and I just find it pretty fascinating. But I just, to me, he's the guy that like I really wanted to talk about because he's just so entertaining. But I actually did not pick him as my favorite player. For me, my favorite player is probably Dent. I, to me, like I, I, I like you said about Mac watching Mac. I, I love watching defensive ends rush the passer. I love watching offensive line play. I mean, that's it's you know that's what I'm doing when I'm watching football. I'm watching that as the play happens. And so to have a great pass rusher 
like Dent, that's my favorite player to watch. Like that, that's the guy that I find to be the most interesting player from this decade. And, and so for me, it's Dent. But Dent does not win my next category, and that is best season. Did you have anybody down for best season? Yes, and I wrote in my notes. Here, here's what I wrote. I know you're going Wilbur eighty six. Yeah, no, and so you're correct. I I I didn't want to go Wilbur, and but I'm going someone from the same season. I wanted to point this person out because we haven't talked about him at all in the podcast, and I think they get overlooked a little bit in Bears history for how good they were. Uh, you mentioned approximate value, and uh, Wilbur Marshall had twenty one in the eighty six season. Twenty three. Sorry, twenty three. Uh, this person I'm picking was fourth in the league. Can you? You probably do you remember seeing it? Uh, no. Dave Dewerson. Okay. Wow, yeah. That's definitely a guy that doesn't get talked about enough. Here's here's Dave Dewerson's 86 season. Six picks for 139 yards. A lot of tackles. That's great right there. Mm-hmm. He has seven sacks. Oh, jeez. Seven sacks. He was fourth in the league for that approximate value statistic that you talked about. I think the only reason he doesn't get a lot of recognition during that time is he's always got to deal with Ronnie Lott for the 49ers. He's ahead of Ronnie Lott that season and that stat and all the stats, but Ronnie Lott's first team all pro. And so I think you, you, you can't make every person on the Bears an all pro. Yeah. And so I wanted to point out an incredible season that he had in 86. Yeah, that's great. Like I say, he doesn't get talked about enough. What about best game? Did you find a best game that you wanted to highlight? I'm picking... The game against the Cowboys in the 85 season. Here's why. Okay. Yeah. Wait, when I would always hear about that game, I assumed the Cowboys were terrible. And the Bears just go in there and win 44 to nothing. No. But no, they're they're a playoff team. Right. They're a playoff team. They have a great defense. They got Tony Dorsett. They got Danny White. Like they they're close to playing the Bears again in the playoffs. They're America's team. This is a nationally televised game. A lot of people aren't hundred percent sure if the Bears are for real at this point. And the Bears come out and demolish them 44 to nothing. And in that game, the best game I have, Richard Dent, because he has mm. two he has two sacks and a pick six versus the Cowboys. Oh, so wow. Th- th- this is like the, the Bears' statement game that we're, we're a terror on the league. Like, we're the best team in the league, and it's not even close. I like that answer. I actually tried to go for an individual performance on this one. And I found that Richard Dent has the single game sack record. Like he has all the sack records, but he has the single game sack record against the Raiders. Do you want to guess how many sacks he had in one game? Four and a half. Four and a half sacks. Four and a half sacks against the Raiders. He did that in 1984. Oh, he also did that in 1987 against the Raiders. <laughs> So apparently the Raiders did not like seeing Richard Dent. So wanted to make sure I highlighted those individual performances by Dent. All right, how about best moment or thing that happened? I'm I'm kind of guessing we'll have the same best moment. To me, it's NFC Championship game. The game is pretty much sewn up, but uh, Rams are driving. They're at the 50-yard line. The quarterback drops back, fumbles. Wilbur picks it up. The snow starts falling, mm. runs it in for a touchdown. It's this iconic uh, moment from that season. Like when when I think of the Bears' '85 season, I, that's one of the first images that pops in my head. 
All right, so that's probably the right answer. Now let me give you the like meatball answer. Okay. And the meatball answer is the fridge getting a touchdown against Green Bay. Mm, okay. That's a good answer too. That's a meatball answer, but that's that's why I wanted to make sure we talked about that. So <laughs> as, as the best thing that happened. Uh, all right, GM stuff. What's the best roster move? It's 83 draft. 83 draft. I have the exact same thing. <laughs> 83 draft. Uh, yeah. Okay, so two Hall of Famers. Right. Okay. Let's just let's just say we remove them from the equation. Okay. And the the Hall of Famers are uh, Cover and Dent. Right. There's still two more guys that make multiple Pro Bowls. Right. And that still leaves five starters on the '85 team. So altogether, two Hall of Famers, four guys who make multiple Pro Bowls, and seven starters on your '85 championship team. It's unheard of. It's unreal. Yeah, it's a it's a home run draft. It's it's crazy how good that draft is, and and really it sets up Peyton for his renaissance. Mm-hmm. I mean, building Absolutely. that offensive line keeps Peyton going, and I to me that's uh, that's worth everything right there because again I've got him here in a little bit, but his renaissance is what makes him seals his legacy. So, what about worst roster move? Every draft after the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, the, your best players from those drafts, Neil Anderson, Jim Harbaugh, Danelle Wilford, Trace Armstrong, Jerry Fontenot. That's the rest of the 80s. Those are nice players. You don't win You don't win Super Bowls with those guys. You probably don't win playoff games with those guys. There's a bunch of guys you would recognize like Ron Morris, Wendell Davis, Brad Muster. And not to take anything away from those guys, I love all those players because those were the first Bears that right. I really remember seeing all the time. And they're fine players, but they have so many misses in there. They have one draft after I think Wilbur and Otis leave and other players. And they get these compensation picks. They have like 16 picks in this draft and they miss on almost every single one. (laughs) You know what, what I really learned from, I, I, I'm like you, I'm on pro football reference all the time. You just look at good teams as drafts, right? It's, it's not getting superstars in the third, fourth and fifth round. But it's getting a guy in the third round that can be a starter five years from you. And in the pro reference site, they show how many years this person was a starter. And there's so many zeros in all these drafts after 85. And so the cupboard never gets restocked. And and so Dent and McMichael and Hampton, those guys get old and there's it's really no one to replace them with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a fair answer, and I think that's why it's so important that you have a good general manager with a vision that you know pairs well with the coach and fills the cupboard up with the ingredients that the coach needs and all that kind of stuff. I was trying to think specifically. I was thinking, you know, not retaining Wilbur after the '87 season. I think that's a that's a rough one. I think it at least needs to be mentioned. He goes on to have, you know, still a really successful career after he leaves the Bears, and so that that's a tough one to swallow. Uh, and then I think, you know, just the old Bears bugaboo of not having the quarterback position properly figured out, bringing in Flutie, you know, in, in 86, you know, it doesn't work. You know, no offense to him, obviously, nice guy, had plenty of success in the CFL, came back to the NFL and, you know, had a little bit of a nice run, but eh, it wasn't working in 86. And, you know, so to not have that figured out behind McMahon to have a good option, that's, you know, that's definitely a reason why he left one on the table. So, that's a negative one. All right. For favorite what if, we're actually going to do a favorite what if and then a least favorite what if. And so the favorite what if 
well, God, this is kind of negative too, but what if Charles Martin doesn't have the cheap hit on Jim McMahon that takes out McMahon for the rest of the year? That's like the most obvious what if to me. Um, yeah. But for, but for me, like I, I can't stop thinking about just how much different, and this is going to sound maybe a little dramatic, how much different my childhood is if, if George Hallis hires Bill Walsh. like i just think like how much different like the identity of what how i see football right like seeing football through the lens of a bears fan is seeing it as defense and running game and if george hallis hires bill walsh and lets him you know complete his vision in chicago of what he was building with some good you know uh Bengals offenses for with the original West Coast offense in, in Cincinnati. Like, if he brings that to Chicago and drafts someone like Joe Montana or whatever, like, what happens to my childhood of identifying with offensive football instead of defensive football? And that's my favorite what if to kind of think about what, what that would be like. Do you have one? Mine, mine is related to McMahon in that play because when you think of the decade and why they don't win more Super Bowls, it's got to be McMahon always getting hurt. And so I was kind of blaming the GM for not having a, you know, a solid backup. But I did some deep, I did some deep research, Jeff, and I think it was just it was fate that they couldn't ever get a second quarterback. Now here's why. So I thought, okay, maybe they start to see in '85 McMahon's kind of a health risk. Who could they have gotten? There's no one. Mm. It is a completely barren QB landscape outside of 1983. So here we go. In 85, the only thing that would work is if they reach for Randall Cunningham in the first round and they don't draft Fridge, yeah, which sounds right. cool but doesn't seem likely. In, right. 80, in 86, the only semi-decent thing available is Mark Rippon in the sixth round. In 87, it's Rich Gannon in the third, Don Mikowski in the tenth. There's no one there. Right, Jeff, right, in right. 1988 – the first quarterback off the board in the third round is Tom Tupa. <laughs> the punter. The punter. I, I keep thinking, why couldn't they get a quarterback? There is no quarterbacks available. Right. In 84, they would have to have traded up to get Boomer Esiason in the second round. And these are all, like, best-case scenarios. Like, if they knew history, they could go back and do it differently. In, in 83, okay, maybe they get Marino instead of Willie Galt. That would be interesting. And uh, even going back to McMahon's draft, it wasn't like they passed up on someone great after McMahon. The next quarterback taken after McMahon is Oliver Luck, Andrew's dad. Hmm, okay. There's just an 81 draft. It's Wade Wilson, Neil Lomax. There's there's nothing there. Someone needs to go back and study from this time period because there's nothing. They were all in 83. Besides the 83 draft, you got three Hall of Famers. But it's it's a barren landscape around that. It's unbelievable. Young was in 84, but he goes to the USFL. Young was, I forget the exact years, but he is a, uh, what's the term? Not the, not the real draft, but the supplemental. supplemental draft. He's a supplemental draft pick in 85. So that, in theory, they could have done that too. Yeah, that would have been hard. You had McMahon, so it's, you had McMahon. it's tough, to, tough to. All right, so least favorite what if, and I added this on because we talked about this before we started recording, and that's what if the Dolphins win the AFC Championship in 1985 and play the Bears in the Super Bowl? I've I've thought about that since I learned my Bears history a long time ago. That always bugged me 
you know, part of me thought as a kid, well, the Bears got lucky. They didn't have to play the Dolphins again. The Dolphins kicked their butts the first time. And you would hope that Ryan swallows his pride, makes the adjustments, and they try and play the Dolphins a little differently. But when you read about that Dolphins game too, the Bears just don't show up. It's a hot night in Miami. There's some fluky. There's the play where the ball bounces off maybe Fensick and goes right to a Dolphins receiver for a touchdown. There's some fluky plays in there. It's not 46 to 10, but I I do think the Bears win, but it's a much different game. Yeah. Patriots never had a shot. No, Patriots. It was over before it started. What 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 do you think about that possible Dolphins Bears matchup? Well, I think I, I think it's one of those like lingering questions, right? So if if the Dolphins win, it's a better story because they get the chance to um, avenge that one loss. And so just from like a script, you know, perspective, mm, yeah, you would you would put them in because you'd want that like you know, hey, like, this is the one blemish, and they get a chance to just come back and destroy them on the biggest stage. But obviously you take the risk of that being their real Achilles heel. And obviously Don Shula is a good coach. Dan Marino is a Hall of Fame quarterback. He's, you know, obviously he's young here, but still like he's, you know, he's very good early in his career. And so, it, yeah, I mean, you have to kind of sit there and think, well, <laughs> maybe the Bears did get lucky. And sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And when you're both, then, you know, that that's fine too. But, yeah, I, I, I personally – you know, from a story standpoint, would have loved it if that's how it played out. But it's it's one of those that I yeah, it does kind of make you kind of think, oh crap, what if that would have happened, and the Dolphins would have won that, and then the Bears don't win any. You know, that's a that's a very bad what if. I don't like that game. All right, here's our roster decision. So, what player would you most want on the 2006 Bears team to put them over the top to win the Super Bowl? Obviously, a lot of options here, but where are you going here? It's the last time I get to do this. I'm going quarterback. I'm going the punky QB. The punky QB. Yeah, I think that's the right answer. I kind of had Dent as my first person that came to mind just because, you, again, you get that like Julius Peppers type player to come in and, and really help with the pass rush. But uh, it's got it's got to be McMahon. You, you put McMahon in over, over Rex Grossman, and I think the Bears win that Super Bowl pretty easily. All right, what about the 2020 roster? Who are you going to bring up? Uh, Jimbo. Jimbo Covert. Man, we uh, are on the same page. I had Jimbo Covert as a very interesting option, even though I do like Charles Leno. Um, but ultimately, I changed my – because I'm a Bears fan and I just love defense and I just you know want to add strength to strength, I'm going to add Dan Hampton to the 2020 roster yeah. because just what you said about being J.J. Watt, I think he can play 3-4 DN in this scheme really well, and that gives you Dan Hampton and Akeem Hicks as your uh, defensive ends in this 3-4 scheme. He gives you Mack. It gives you Quinn as your outside linebackers. So imagine those four players coming at you on a pass rushing down. I mean, it's Katie bar the door, right? Like this is <laughs> the best pass rush of all time. Uh, Why did I just throw strength on strength? I put Danimal. It's a great answer. All right. What about who from the modern? This is kind of interesting because you know, how are you going to improve this defense? But who from the modern Bears would you have uh, that you would take back to the 80s to make them just that much better? I'm not going to put anyone on the defense because that feels sacrilegious. And so I'm going Allen Robinson uh, at the wide receiver position. So you got Galt with the speed, can blow the roof off up top. 
and you got Robinson running all the other routes. And I feel like McMahon and Robinson would connect a lot. Yeah, I think that's a fine answer. But here, here's here's where I went. So I wanted to first answer a defensive player because I thought it'd be really funny. So to me, the obvious answer is Peanut because I think that he certainly would be able to start on this team. I think he would improve that corner position. And can you imagine how much that defense would love Peanut Tillman? <laughs> With how much he takes the ball away, they would absolutely love him. They would love the peanut punch. And so I love imagining the peanut punch on the 80s Bears defense. But in the end, I actually went with Devin Hester. And here's why. I think that if you give them a you know Hall of Fame special teams weapon as a punt returner and kick returner, and remember how much Hester benefited the offense by you know, they wouldn't kick to him and so they'd kick it out of bounds and you know you get all this free yardage because you know coaches were so afraid to kicking to Devin Hester but that on a Bears team that's already giving short fields to their offense it's even worse now or he's adding special teams touchdowns to to the scoreboard so for me I was going to put Hester on this 80s team just because let's give them a dynamic special teams option for in the return game I can't believe you did my man Dennis Gentry like that. I like Dennis Gentry, but he's not Devin Hester. No, Hester is the best returner of all time, so it's tough to argue. All right, last question, Matt. Who won the decade? The NFL. The NFL is – there's not a lot of colorful personalities in the NFL up to this point. Mm-hmm. The Bears are – they transcend football. They're the pop culture phenomenon. And they're still making money from the NFL today. Um, no one ever talks about, oh, the 89 Niners or the 92 Cowboys or the 2000 Ravens. No one no one cares about that. But if you say 85 Bears, any football fan knows exactly what you mean. They brought the NFL over the top and they showed that, hey, these, these big galoots, they have personalities too. And America fell in love with them. And uh, I think... The NFL was the big winner there because they showed football players can have first personalities. Uh, they're the, they can be these larger-than-life characters, and they have a lot of fun. The Bears team was fun. That's why everyone loves them. That's why everyone still talks about them. They were fun. And so I think the NFL was the big winner. So, I again, it's amazing how much on the same page we are. I had a couple answers because they're my questions, so I guess I can violate my own questions. But... My first answer was America. <laughs> yeah. Because uh-huh. Chicago culture was really front and center. And so I guess you could just say Chicago. But I think America won because they really kind of looked to this team. like this. They're fascinated and just how much it impacted pop culture. And you, you mentioned, you know, Plank uh, giving Singletary the nickname from Saturday Night Live. But Saturday Night Live is taking, you know, Chicago culture and the Bears culture with you know the the bears stuff right and and so there's just this complete intermixing of these things and you like you said bill murray you've got the blues brothers you got all this stuff that's just kind of pulling together all the chicago stuff and and really being wrung out as this like americana piece to to the entire country and i just think like you know america really won with the 85 bears because it captured their imagination now, if I was going to give it to a specific player, I, I need to give it to Peyton. And we haven't talked a lot about him because we talked so much. But here's why. He toiled on a lot of bad teams in the 70s. 
He gets to the 80s, they start to get better. And here's how things break for him in the 80s. He is the all-time leading rusher. So what was once seemed very impossible, he breaks Jim Brown's record. And he puts it up much higher than Jim Brown. So he is the all-time leading rusher. He puts up great seasons in the mid-80s. So in 83, 84, and 85, he goes over 2,000 yards from scrimmage in each of those seasons. It's like incredibly consistent. It's like within like 50 yards, uh, all three of those seasons. He's second in MVP voting in 1985 to Marcus Allen. And Marcus Allen, nice player, obviously, Hall of Fame player. He has Marcus Allen has his by far his best season in 1985. It's like 2,300 yards from scrimmage. He never comes close to that in any of his other seasons. That's the only reason why Peyton doesn't win a second MVP award that year is because Marcus Allen just had just a kind of a outlier of a season. But Peyton was second place and he was right there and he won the Burt Bell MVP award, uh, which is from a different agency in. in in 1985 and so from that stretch in my opinion and with with the championship year Peyton goes from like a really great running back who's going to be in the hall of fame and and he's fantastic to the greatest of all time and so when you solidify a legacy like that I think that he deserves to win back-to-back decades Uh, well I'm not going to argue with Walter Peyton winning anything for how great he was and you shouldn't. So <laughs> <laughs> I won't. <laughs> All right, Matt. Obviously, our longest episode that we have done to date. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was crazy because we, we have so much to talk about. This decade is so important. Obviously, next decade will not be quite as long, but that's it. That's the 1980s. Uh, make sure you join us next time as we'll be covering the 1990s. And don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. Find me at Gridiron Porn. Until next time. Thanks for listening and bear down.